Welcome to the Five Oceans Podcast with hosts Mark Campbell and Chris Gervais from Five Oceans Advisors, a fee-only financial advisory firm serving Gen X and Gen Y founders and C-suite entrepreneurs. Mark and Chris share the core beliefs that traditional wealth management is now a commodity and that clients deserve more from their financial advisors. As founders and entrepreneurs themselves, Mark and Chris have developed a new model for wealth management called Life Strategy, a proprietary system designed to teach clients how to connect the dots between money and happiness with the ultimate goal of empowering them to be whom they want to be in the world. Now, onto the show. Hello, I am Mark Campbell, and on behalf of me and my co-host and business partner, Chris Gerbase, welcome to the Five Oceans podcast. Uh, this is actually the first episode of our Exit Planning Toolkit mini-series, which is meant to be a collection of experts, <laughs> expert insight for founders and C-suite entrepreneurs who are on their way towards a meaningful exit. Uh, our first guest today, I'm very excited to, to have him, uh, is Dave Young. Uh, Dave, before we uh, get into anything, let me give a little bit of your uh, esteemed background so we can set the stage here. You know, Dave is co-founder of Cooley's Santa Monica office. He represents emerging growth companies at all stages as well as the venture capital firms, strategic investors, and investment banks that finance these companies. In addition to providing strategic counseling, his practice encompasses VC financings, M&A, public offerings, equity compensation matters, strategic counseling, complex corporate partnering transactions, and corporate governance. Okay, a lot of stuff there. Representing both public and private companies, primarily digital media, software, technology, clean tech, life sciences, consumer products in the media and entertainment sectors. So that was a lot. Um, and that is, a, you know, in my mind, a shortcut to uh, making the point that what Chris and I already know is that Dave is a big deal. <laughs> Dave, Dave won't say it, but Dave is a big deal. And particularly in this world, we first crossed paths. Geez, I, I was trying to figure it out. It was probably 2005, 2006. Uh, and I, uh, I had started a comedy theater in Santa Monica and we were raising uh, a round of funding back in the day to an online content company. And you were very kind to help us uh, along the way and certainly gave us more than our fair share of uh, free advice in those early days, in those early days. So welcome, Dave. Welcome. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's great. Good. <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity. You got it. Um, and so, you know, to the listeners, the format is really going to be, we're trying to get at some of the big pain points that, um, folks in Dave's world and in our world on the financial advisory side experience. And, um, we're going to dig into that. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and this is Chris chiming in here. And, um, one of the, before we get into Q and A with Dave, you're going to, you're going to notice in the exit planning toolkit, we're going to notice a couple of overarching themes that come up over and over again with, um, between CPA, attorney, estate planning, attorney, M and A. Um, there are a couple of things that, that just are very important for, for all of them in all of those arenas. And one of those is the importance of having a team in place. Right, your wealth manager, CPA, M and A attorney, 
estate planning attorney and investment banker. So that's going to be a recurring theme and another very important recurring theme for all of our founders listening to this exit planning toolkit is the importance of seeking guidance prior to, emphasis on prior to signing an LOI, a letter of intent. So we're going to dig into that today and Dave's going to share a lot more details. Um, For the purpose of where we are in this conversation, the context of it, in terms of exit planning, there are a lot of things a business can and should be doing to optimize for a successful sale and even optimize for a sale price, et cetera. We're going to talk about some of those things in another exit planning toolkit episode. But for purposes of this podcast, we're going to assume that the business is doing all the right things. It is strong. It's got strong management. It's not too much reliance upon the owner, uh, a laundry list of things. It's a strong business and it is poised for sale, whether um, the business owner is approached by a buyer or whether the business owner proactively wants to go sell. So the assumption is the business is strong and uh, and technically ready to, to be sold in terms of um, the health of the business. But that said, Dave, I want to focus in on the LOI. Why is it in your opinion, um, that the seller of a business seek counsel prior to ever signing the LOI. What can go wrong if you don't do that? Sure. Yeah. And the letter of intent in an M&A transaction is probably the most critical document, even though, which isn't necessarily intuitive because it's mostly non-binding other than confidentiality and most likely exclusivity meaning there's a period of time of you know 30 45 60 days something in that range where you know the the sellers no longer permitted to talk to any other acquirers and most likely financing sources during that period of time and that's really the key issue because it, again it's not always intuitive to people but there's two very different perspectives coming in to that process from the buyer's point of view you know they uh, they're all about getting that exclusivity. They want to sort of, you know, with as little sort of detail as possible and as little having been agreed as possible, lock up that seller for 60 days so that they basically know they have the deal. So in the, in the buyer's ideal world, the LOI has a purchase price and maybe it's even a range. Um, and then beyond that, it just says we're going to have customary earnout. We're going to have customary retention, customary non-compete and customary employment agreements and customary indemnification provisions. And it's all just TBD, customary, we're going to work together. And, um, you know, but then, but the problem is from the buyer point of view, um, or that's where that's their uh, lowest point of leverage. It, it, and for the seller, it's actually your highest point of leverage because, hmm. you know, as soon as you sign that letter of intent, suddenly all other bidders are out of play. The buyer knows that the seller has emotionally committed. We we'll use a hundred million dollars example. Emotionally committed to sell for a hundred million dollars. They, you know, and basically agreed to do the deal sort of within a range of alternatives on all those other points. And uh, and yet the second they sign that LOI and agree to that. The, the seller's leverage goes way, way, way down because you can't do anything else for 60 days. You're, you're paying lawyers, you're paying accountants, you're in this process with all these TBD items that you're going to have a hard time pushing on. 
where so from the seller point of view you'd rather the things that you truly care about you want to have that detail in letter of intent and you sort of need to really try to have that intestinal fortitude to actually you know take a few extra days at that time and it pays off later and not fall for oh this is non-binding it doesn't matter we'll just sign it so because, I want to I want I want to yeah. ask you ask you specifically about that, Dave. So one of the yeah. things that that we always hear um, from our clients and um, and and other advisors advising these clients is that the theme of just usually your buyers are professional buyers. They've been through it a mm-hmm. bunch of times. They're experts. They've you know maybe gone through this process 10, 20, 30, 100 times. And usually your seller is doing this once. Sure, on occasion there's a seller that maybe is doing it for the second or third or fourth or fifth time, but um, it's it, there's definitely a, a big discrepancy there. And um, and from what you just said, this the the buyer really wants the LOI to be as vague as possible because they can kind of then turn the screws the way they want to further further uh, further down the line of the process. What exactly does the seller want to have included in the LOI before it's signed? Yeah, and you can't go too crazy, right? Because it's still going to be just a few yep. page document. But but the basically, if there are things that as the seller, you would either not do the deal unless they work a certain way, or just are really important, you know, to have to have clarity. Those are the things you'd want to include. You know, the it gets a little nuanced, but the the second most important provision after price is typically how the indemnification provisions work, meaning that you know, they're going to pay you the 100 million and then there's going to be 30 pages of reps and warranties or 20 pages of reps and warranties. And if there are breaches for that or otherwise, the buyer can claw back purchase price. And having the right guardrails around that and having working customer parameters is really important. Sometimes there's representations of warranties insurance where it's just on the buyer to go pay for an insurance policy who pays for that gets negotiated. Um, that's what you'd want as a seller in a lot of cases, but you'd want to ask for that up front or you'll never get it. Um, and and then also, you know, or you want to just be with a 10% escrow and only 12-year survival period so that you know that you, when you get that payment, maybe a little of it is an escrow and conventionally, uh, if there were really problems and breaches could be clawed back. But for the most part, once you get your cash, it's yours. So the indemnification is definitely probably the biggest one. But there, there are others. I mean, for example, if there's an earnout, you would want to know what are the metrics on that earnout is, right? If it's 100 million plus another potential 50 million earnout payments, like how realistically that can be achieved is going to be a really big deal. And you'll want to have at least a general understanding of what the met the metrics are that are defining that. And if there's going to be retention for the team, um, you know, individual employment agreements or other sort of retention payments for sticking around over time, again, like that's important to people. And so at least having a general sense of, you know, enough specificity and how that's going to work that people are comfortable. And even, you know, and it, it customarily, there'd always be a non-compete on the founder and, and principal shareholders, or at least principal management shareholders for some period of time. It's usually two to five years. But, you know, a, a, a buyer that just puts in, there'll be non-compete agreements at closing. Like it's only two words to put, whether it's a two-year non-compete or a five-year non-compete, and they know what they're going to ask for. And so just making, adding that level of detail when you have the leverage, when there were, even if you're only talking to one party, the buyer's always going to imagine that you're talking to their other biggest competitor and there's other people in play. And so deciding whether it's two years or five years while they actually are worried about whether they're going to win the deal or not 
is the right time, whether once they know that they have the deal and it just becomes this minor detail, whether the non-compete agreement is two years or five years, you know, puts you in a much worse spot. And so I think it's yeah, interesting. We, yeah, I was going to say just Go in ahead. terms of, no, it's, I love the term that you use, uh, intestinal fortitude uh, on this, right? Um, because it really, so much can be won or lost in a deal around the steps taken, the order of the steps, understanding leverage at a certain point versus another point. And um, I imagine it's got to be very challenging for people to ha have so much riding on getting a deal done and an exit taking place. And you've got the LOI sitting in front of you. And I'm going to hold out a little bit longer for a couple of things. I mean, we're not going crazy, but still, that's got to be psychologically yeah. very challenging. It is. You get the purchase price you wanted, or at least that you know that you yeah. can live with and you're excited about, and that's what you're going to focus on, rightfully right. so, right? And that's yeah. what this, yeah. the buyer's trying to do is have your eyes light up at that, yeah. and then yeah, so they can turn the screws a little bit, like just wait and try and deal with everything <laughs> else later. You, know, you can't go too crazy, but you want to pick your spots yeah. as what are the four or five things that we care about that right. we can make sure are sorted in a way that we're comfortable with. And sometimes even who's going to be running the company is another example, right? right? That if you're going to be like an independent business unit and have a little autonomy, and that's what, if that's important to you, you're going to want to have that conversation earlier. Yeah. Um, I can tell you that this has happened to me a couple of times. I, I think a lot of founders <laughs> think a lot of the stuff you just described, Dave, like, yes, we're, we're going to work those things out eventually, right? They signed the LOI prematurely. And of course, those things will work themselves out. But um, I think a big lesson is that's just not always the case when you lose the leverage. And I have had a couple of experiences where it with, with a new client who's basically hiring us and says, I just, I've just signed an LOI and now I need all this help. And, and, and that has been, uh, I mean, I think we can all agree that's not ideal. So just a, just a point to, to really drive home here. No, I agree with that. And that's something you touched on about having sort of the, you know, the the different players on the team in place early on. So you don't end up in that situation of like, oh, you have this business, non-binding business document. And then I'm going to go and like talk to find my wealth management advisor, find my CPA, find the M&A lawyer I'm going to use. And, right. you know, where there's a whole, it, it's way it'd be way more beneficial to sort of have that team helping you um, yeah, and, from the outside. And, and, and even just the, uh, again, this idea of people should be properly calibrated on what leverage they do and don't have and when they do and don't have it. Like, you, how do you how do you ascertain that insight without having been through the process 10, 20, 100 times, right? And I think that, you know, on one end of the spectrum, and we've seen this for sure, you get entrepreneurs uh, who uh, maybe are going too hardcore, demanding too much, but maybe even more often you see people who don't know that they do have more degrees of freedom in the process and they're just kind of getting, <laughs> just not taking advantage of it because they don't know they can no, you're right. And, and and people often do have, uh, you know, more leverage than they think. It's not always the case, right? Yeah. Sometimes like the buyer barely likes the deal and they are stretching on price and, you know, you got to be a little bit careful, but it's not always yeah. true. And even sometimes think like with the biggest buyers that you have no leverage where actually, honestly, in my experience, in some cases, it's the opposite. Like if you have the very biggest company buyers and someone senior enough in that company said, I want to buy this other company and tells their team, go buy this. 
the CEO, say, just an example, you know, CEO of a, of a very large company says, go buy this to their team. That guy is the, their their corporate development person is not going to go back to the CEO and said, oh, over whether the indemnification escrow was 10 percent or 20 percent. Right. We couldn't agree on that. So we didn't do the deal. They're never going to say that they were actually do it on almost any terms because they were told by that CEO. Right. We're buying this company. And so you sometimes have a whole lot more leverage than you think. And 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 it's, you know, people, you know, it's one reason ha- people have investment bankers, right? They create the specter of competition, even when there's not, right? They, they know how to make the buyer feel like there's other people in play. Sometimes it's true, right? Sometimes it's not, like even, you know, um, and it's, sometimes it's true to, you know, lesser extents, right? Like if they're having a process and they're advancing finalists, you know, they'll always advance a second and third finalist to that final process, even if their bids were like a third as much, just so they can say, oh, there's still three players in the mix. And, and sometimes when a buyer knows that you didn't have a banker, they came to you, they're being proactive. You can still just say, hey, like we're thinking about going and raising money in a pri- in a minority financing from someone. And if, you know, and, and they know that like, if you did that, that new investor isn't going to want to sell for less than two or three X for at least a year. And so they, if they, if they want to buy, you say, you want to buy us now for a hundred million dollars, you got to do it. Cause we go raise this money. It's going to be 250 million right. like the next day. And they know, and it's actually true. And so there are ways you can create leverage. Um, and again, you do want to be self-aware, but sometimes they have more, people do have more leverage than they think. So one of the themes that um, that I think is going to be important through this entire exit planning toolkit too is that a lot of deals end up falling through for a, for a lot of different reasons, and and so it's it's definitely not an easy thing to have a successful transaction that actually gets over the finish line. I don't know what the percentages are. I'm going to look that up and provide some data to our listeners. But I think um, from what I recall, it's a pretty high percentage of deals that where an LOI is signed but the transaction doesn't close, and I know that, and and Dave, from speaking with you previously, an area where deals fall through is in due diligence. And due diligence is encompasses a whole lot of things. But I want to ask you, what are some of the what are some of the main points in due diligence where you've seen basically be deal killers and what can founders, you know, keep an eye out for and and know in advance to help promote a successful transaction? Yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, there are, you know, there's certainly are a variety of of reasons why deals would get would die in during the process or the buyer tries to retrade on price and the seller doesn't want to do it and that that makes right. them do so and due diligence is a big part of it and, and, and in a lot of cases too it's not it's not always solely a due diligence issue but that in conjunction with anything else like it's just you know it, it can definitely add to it and so you know there are a few things i mean and, and so I guess the initial thing I would say on that topic is just it really helps to sort of be be organized and be ready to go and be able to have a well organized you know data room through one of the various you know online SaaS platforms have that in a, you know you're not going to always have to have it perfect but having it in in a state where if you get an offer or when you're ready to go it's just a couple days to update it and add in the most recent things and have that ready for prime time is really, really important. I mean, it's just, you want things to be organized. You want, 
even just that first perception, right? If, if, if you send them two thirds of the documents and it's all haphazard and it's disorganized, like it's just going to be irritating to the buyer and they're going to like be asking, well, there's this amendment that's referred to, this isn't signed, this, even little things like that, it just makes it seem like the company's a mess where if you can show like, look very organized and everything's organized, it's in folders. Um, and and it, you want to think about the platform that you use too. I mean, it matter, this can matter a little bit by, um, you know, the situation and who the buyer is and the size of the deal. But, you know, there are, a lot of like the law firms would have platforms that are free that you can use that they've paid a license for that are fine. But you can also, you know, go to DataSide or one of the third party vendors, you know, it will cost 15 or $20,000 or whatever it costs, but they have really real functionality where you can see exactly which person looked at which document for how long, and so you have this great data about like your five buyers that are or potential buyers, bidders that are looking through your data room. You know exactly who's really digging in, which person there, and what how much time they spent on different documents, what they printed, what they downloaded. Like you get really, really good information. And it's so it makes you look professional, but also gives you really good data if you, you know, if you're willing to invest in it. You know, and I'd say the issues that come up, I mean, there's probably a couple different categories. Certainly, um, IP is a big one. Um, you know, sometimes it's infringing people's IP. Probably the most common type IP issue is just not having employees and consultants have signed the agreements that assign their work product to the company. They call confidentiality mm -hmm. and, in, and inventions assignment agreements. And it seems like a random HR requirement and we're just having people sign these agreements. But the reality is in the absence of having that, like the starting point under the law is that the person that wrote that code or created those marketing materials or built whatever work product they're creating, the person owns it, not the company. And even though you paid them to do it, and there's certain arguments you can make when you don't have them, but they're not great. You can talk about shop rights and, you know, and, and, um, work for hire and things, but you, you really, really, that's a big deal. And when people, and it, and it's, when it's existing employees and consultants, it's a little easier to clean up when you're having to go back and have past right. consultants that were writing software code or creating technology, they're going to need to sign in. And it's going to be a little challenging tracking them down. So that's definitely a big one. And just having that in order and having those processes in place is something that is going to really, really make things smoother at sale. And I guess the second big area would just be around the cap table and just who owns the equity, who has stock option grants. You know, a lot of companies will end up being a little bit lax and they tell people they're getting stock option grants, but they're just listed in their offer letters and they're just listed in a spreadsheet, but they never actually went through getting the 4A valuation and formally having board approval of the options. And just, you know, having that all completely buttoned up is is huge. I mean, it's going to be tax way more tax efficient for those people. There are ways to fix it in the context of a deal if they hadn't gotten something, but it's messy. And just knowing who has what, having the right document signed, you know, when someone's claiming, comes out of the woodwork claiming to own, you know, 5% of the company because had some email promise that was never papered, like that's the kind of thing that's going to be a big problem um, in a deal. You know, another example is just, you know, there's sort of privacy and regulatory matters. And this is an, a challenge that you're not always able to completely overcome by definition, because when it comes to, to kind of regulatory compliance, 
again, I'll use privacy and data security as the example, um, almost by definition, a large public company buyer has a different threshold for risk and tolerance than the high growth private company or the smaller company has. Um, and so, and that's fine, but you just want to be ready for that. You want, and you want to be buttoned up. You have to be, you know, like people sometimes think when they get into due diligence with a buyer that it's going to be, oh, we're just going to provide our documents and it's done. But every buyer has a little bit of a different process, but a lot of them, it's, you know, it's a big team doing due diligence and they want to have calls on every topic, a hour and a half call on privacy, on technology, on HR, on how you do your contracts, on like six or seven different topics. And, you know, some of it's business, a lot of it's legal. And, you know, they're going to, you, you want to be just have things organized and how to be doing things, um, you know, be thinking about hitting in that process. Like where, where are the areas we can shore up, you know, talking to advisors, talking to counsel, seeing sort of having someone take a spin through the data room and see what's missing or see what they might, might pick at. Um, you know, it, there are some cases where there actually is something that is going to be an issue, right? Maybe there is ongoing trademark litigation or sexual harassment claim, or there's, uh, you know, an agreement that was entered into a few years ago that like you wouldn't do business in these 10 countries in Asia. And it is what it is. It exists. It, maybe it wasn't the best thing to do. Maybe the company regrets it, but it's there. And so you also just, again, you want to think about think about those things early. Think about how you think about them as a buyer and approach them and just be ready to think about what's the right time to socialize it and how, right? Sometimes it's, it's a big enough deal that you want to bring it out up front. Sometimes people will say, hey, like we're going to get past the letter of intent that we talked about before and we're going to like bring this up and I'll have just to use an example and I'm probably someone will hear this and use it against me as far as this negotiating strategy. <laughs> but, you know, like we'll, we'll, like, we'll know that there's this one thing that's really, really messy and really weird. And we'll just, as soon as the deal kind of kicks off, I'll schedule a call with the buyer's counsel. Hey, I just want to have like a due diligence call and preview a few things for you. Right. And like the, I know that one of them is that there's this IP from this really messy deal early on, this joint venture that didn't work, and it's really messy, and we don't really understand how, how what what the agreement said. Um, that's the one I'm worried about, but I'll create a list of five things, four of which are completely made up, right? Oh, there's this warrant that works this way. There's this employment agreement that was amended, but it was signed later, whatever the, whatever the made up things are. But then the number four or five is the one I actually wanted to talk about. To talk about these three things that are not a very big deal, I want to preview a few due diligence issues with you. You go through those three. And then on the fourth one, you just say what it is. You kind of skip by it, move quickly on to the fifth one, which is also meaningless. And you just kind of, you told them on a call that we have this huge IP problem, but you just kind of minimized it by putting it in this list of four more meaningless things. And that's there's a lot of different ways to do it. This is an example of where at least you want to be thoughtful and have a strategy. Yes. You're not trying to trick the buyer. They're buying your whole company. They're going to get full disclosure. I'm just saying how you first socialize the issue and not make it sound like the house is on fire. It's not like you can't. You need to be transparent and give them full disclosure during the process. But how you first bring up the issue, you probably have a little more wiggle room in how you how you. Right, it. right. And I'm sure there's, you know, there's always stuff that's going to come up 
And, and, and it is, it's, I, you know, at the level of maintaining the right type of relationship between buyer and seller through this process and doing it the right way, the thoughtful way. Um, and also, you know, in leaning towards the best interest of the side that you're representing. I mean, that's the, that's the process that's happening. Yeah. And I guess, right. It's maintaining trust, right? I don't want to overstate it, but, but yeah, in yeah. so much is really more controlling the narrative, right? I mean, that's really, absolutely like to hear it from you. And you want Absolutely. to be able to frame what the issue was and not have them find out because they dug through yep. the due diligence data room, right? That's the whole point of the call, hypothetical call I was referencing was right before we give you access to the data room, we're going to tell you these five things you're going to see and explain them to you. That, right. That's really kind of how it works. Um, and and, and as it gets deeper, you know, there's, you know, you have you have due diligence within, in the process. I mean, this gets a little further ahead, but you have, you know, disclosure schedules that, you need to prepare that your insurance policy at the seller. And that's where you need to be really, really transparent and give them, you know, there will be those 30 pages of representations and warranties in the merger agreement. But then the disclosure schedule gives all the facts that make that true. And so that's where the dirty laundry gets aired. And that's where you mm -hmm. need to put detailed disclosure. And that is a document, again, that you don't want to minimize because that's where liability actually attaches after the deal. And so, you know, you just want to be or that it all ties into the diligence of being organized that you could do a good job on that on that process once you get into it and there's a million things going on. It even seems like if you are well organized it's still going to be like you said you're still going to be on hours of calls. It's a it's a heavy lift and one of the things and not being organized just makes that a way heavier lift, just makes it worse, but one of the another theme that that I've seen um just in speaking with friends and clients or founders it just seems that when they go through a process and, and sometimes the sale doesn't even happen, I'm, I'm talking to, you know, referencing specific scenarios that I've been privy to, they just are beat up and worn down. And it, it, and, and a lot of that was, you know, not preparing well enough in advance. I know it's hard and business and you're in the day to day and maybe you're not even thinking about necessarily selling. Um, but to start the organization process early on is is such a big theme. And and what I makes me also think about, which we've hit on a couple of times, is just putting myself in those shoes. You've done all this work, you've slogged through this whole due diligence process. You know, you've you've got a number that you know you're satisfied with, but now you start getting beat up on price and you're asking yourself, do I really want to do this again? Like it, you know, you when you get to that 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 point where your energy is just down and you and you you're just exhausted you're um you're likely to either the deal doesn't go through and you vacate it or you're just likely to accept non-ideal terms or non-optimized terms or just a lower sales price and I, I've, I've seen that happen now multiple times as well yeah i agree with you and and, and part of the you know the problem with the process I mean, is a problem which just something to be aware of as the seller is that the M&A process itself, once you get into the deal, once you get past the letter of intent, you're moving towards you know signing agreement 30 days later or whatever it is, that entire process exists for the benefit of the buyer. Like if you're the seller, go back to the $100 million example. If they were going to pay you in cash at closing, you literally, I'm overstating it on purpose, but you'd be willing to sign a one-page piece of paper today that says, I give you $100 million or you give me $100 million, I'll give you the company, and you're done. And that's literally, you'd be so everything else in the process, the 80-page purchase agreement or merge agreement, all those representations and warranties, disclosure schedules, indemnification, insurance, retention agreements, employment agreements, non-competes, 
that really all at all these due diligence calls and due diligence review we just were going through, all of that exists for the benefit of the buyer to protect their investment. And so as the seller, if you can sort of convince the buyer and steer the buyer towards a faster process, that always works mm-hmm. to your benefit and to the detriment of the buyer. And sophisticated buyers realize that, right? So, mm. But sometimes, you know, you mentioned a lot of companies have done a ton of M&A. Some maybe haven't. And so if you can say like, hey, CEO to CEO, like, let's just keep our lawyers in their cage and let's just get this done in 10 days and we'll make it really smooth. Like that's going to always benefit you because again, there's nothing in that process that's very helpful. And that's why, as you're noting, Chris, that's why it is so tiring and draining and exhausting because you're being put through someone else's paces and someone else's process that like you could care less about other than, you know, getting your $100 million. I know I'm selling everyone short. I should be using 500 million as an example, but that's... Of course, obviously. <laughs> Sign of the times. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, I, one, one, one question I did have on this, I mean, we're talking now at the level of getting close to um, an actual exit, right? And we're talking about the really the point of LOI and what we could have done a little bit before that. But from your through your lens, what is the right time to get, you know, a you involved in helping make sure that these things are steering in the right direction, even if you're not at exit yet. No. And and I think, yeah. And I think that's right. I I think as people, certainly if anyone's going to really start a real M&A process, then for sure you want to have, you know, that's when you start to think like, you know, do we have the right, Council, do we have the right finance team? Do we have mm-hmm. the right advisors mm-hmm. in place? You know, and have they, you know, and, and there could be a difference between depending on how the company was financed and built between the council that worked really well there versus that you're going to have a, you know, if your buyer shows up with their, you know, 2000 lawyer New York law firm that's going to mm-hmm. like have the specialists and have the resources and be understand that process to go up against them. So I think it's really, you know, it'd be when you really start to get into a process and not. You know, the problem is, you know, if someone actually makes a real offer, and we see this all the time, you guys probably do as well, like where then people are scrambling around and they're trying to interview a co- two or three mm-hmm. different lawyers and it's, and sometimes investment bankers, right? And it's just hard because you're doing it really under the gun. You're doing it sort of almost out of weakness, you know, as opposed to sort of doing it early on where you just, you want to get someone that you are on the same page with, that you click with, that in these really difficult times, when the bullets start flying, there's all kinds of things going on in the deal. And there's this 70-page agreement that like, as the, as the founder or business owner, you've lost the ability to, to read every word of that at some point. Mm-hmm. Like, you're no longer being able to look at every change. And you're <laughs> trusting this person to like, create you an issues list of here's the five things in this new draft that you care about. So you just want to make sure you have, it's the right person with the right sort of team and experience and expertise, but also that you click with. And so I do think it's, you know, before heading into the process or like if a buyer, if there's inbound interest, like when that inbound interest shows up, it's a time to think about, do we have the right counsel? Do we need an investment banker, right? That's another question that people sort of ask in M&A because you don't always need to have it. A certain size deal, you almost always would because it can sort of create value in themselves. But there are times if you had an offer at a terms that you could negotiate with your advisors and counsel and you know maybe you don't but it's you want to think about that like when that inbound interest first comes in 
where you start thinking about running a process and not not when you well, not when it's suddenly one of a hundred things you need right. to do. And you know, Mark and I uh, were we're both certified exit planning advisors, and one of the big things that we took away from both that designation and then also just over time and working with clients is is that exit planning is actually is actually just good business strategy. So many of the things that a buyer wants to see is stuff that is a good idea to have in your business. For example, like documentation of processes. Um, that's that that looks good to a buyer. Well, guess what? Is that is documenting your processes and having written down going to be going to make it easier to train people and make your company more efficient? Yes, it's good business strategy. So we're definitely beating the drum of exit planning is not something to think of just when you're okay. You're all of a sudden ready to sell your your business. It's it's actually something. It's just good business strategy that you should be really as as early as possible thinking about some of these issues and and getting ready. Absolutely. I mean, I completely agree with that. And that even, you know, and that can, you know, some of that is just having the right personal estate planning structure heading in, having the right structure for the company. You know, if you, you want to be, you know, there's definitely things you can do to maximize from a structure and tax standpoint, you know, without question. Like an example is if the company's, you know, a C corporation, people would generally have qualified small business stock, but there's a five-year holding period to satisfy that. And then there's some things along the way, if the company does redemption and, re- and re- redemptions and repurchases stock that actually can blow that status. So you want sort of be aware of it as you move forward, but that, you know, paying no zero federal capital gains on, you know, at least the first 10 million in proceeds or 10x your basis, like that's what it's you get deal. with small business stock, it's a huge deal. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that, you know, that's one, you know, as, uh, as an example. Um, and, and Dave, I don't know if we, I hope we have enough time to pull it off here. We, we um, only have a few minutes left, but I did want to ask you about another big deal killer. And that would be the um, everything that comes with an asset sale versus a stock sale. Can you comment on on that, what you've seen and you know, sure. how founders yeah. can prepare. I come that quickly. I mean, the structure of the deal will matter, right? And this is another one to sort of hit up front and not get stuck too early. But like, you know, as the seller, you're gener- generally always going to want someone to be buying the stock and not the assets. Um, if you're a C corporation selling assets, you're going to have two levels of tax and it's going to be a disaster. So you're going to sell the assets and pay corporate level tax. And then you're going to pay dividend tax when you send it out to shareholders. Um matters a little bit less if it's an LLC or an S corporation, but you st- it's still a big hassle. You get the money, the company has to wind down and pay its liabilities. You want someone just to take the company, they own it, it's theirs, whatever like crawls out from under a rock or skeletons might come out of a closet, it's it's on them. Maybe there's some contractual, you know, protections they have, but it's it's their company to deal with. So you want to consider that and it will matter from a tax perspective. And then when there's you know, when there's and corporate perspective, um, and then when there's stock consideration in the deal, when you're not getting cash, but you're getting buyer stock, you really want to be able to have that stock be tax free, which really means tax deferred, right? It means that when you get cash, it's mm-hmm. always taxable at closing. Um, when you get stock, you want it to be tax deferred, where it's that's not the taxable event when you close and exchange your stock. The taxable event is when you sell it, because you don't want to be paying a bunch of tax on illiquid stock mm-hmm. and the structure matters a lot 
you know, in, in deals, there's, depending on how it's structured, there's sometimes there can be no more than 20% cash. Sometimes there can be no more than 60% cash in the mix of consideration. You know, if you're an LLC being acquired by a C corporation, it is never going to be tax-free. And that's a problem. So if you think that deal's coming, you want to think about converting early. You want to be, yeah, you convert to C corp and fix it. And you want to be, you know, and there's ways to do it and there's ways to spin that, that it will work. There's a six month safe harbor, but there's some ways to kind of get comfortable if it's lower or get comfortable enough. So you just, you know, again, like that kind of just planning and thoughtfulness going into it can really, really pay off so that you're at least eyes wide open on what you're getting into, what you're going to be signing up for and what the most importantly, probably what the tax impact is going to be in trying to minimize that. That's huge. Well, this is ultra helpful. I mean, it's precisely for the folks we're trying to help out and get information to. Um, the real the goal of this podcast is is for all, for any founder to be just much more equipped, much more well informed, know who to reach out to, and when um, have these important issues on their radar. And um, and I think we've we've covered a lot of really really valuable well, ground today. And, <laughs> and I feel like. Uh, I feel like the we could almost have the mini series within the mini series. Uh, like this feels like Dave part one of like so many nuggets of insight and wisdom that are just really powerful for people. And so that that's my long winded way of saying I, I I hope we can continue the conversation uh, at at some point as well. No, there's a lot to go deeper on. No, and I agree. It's uh, you know, it's great. Yeah. We'll yeah. Have to, and, we'll have to leverage your uh, comedy club and comedy website yeah. and throw in some more jokes next time. We, yeah, we'll do, <laughs> we'll do. Yeah, we'll do we'll do the comedy uh, version of this uh, as yeah. well. But but no, I I just wanted to say again, like I said, for for many years now, you've been a very trusted uh, person in my life, and watching kind of the kindness that you go about things with and the generosity with your time. It's just been so fun to watch what that's led to for you over time in you know the way that you're respected in 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 your industry and um you know thank you for giving this time to us and and uh we're really happy to kind of be in the world <laughs> doing similar stuff uh along similar people. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. Yeah, thank cool. you enough Dave. Thanks. Cool. All right. Well, that's uh, that will wrap up today's episode of the Five Oceans podcast. Uh, we uh, look forward to continuing the exit planning toolkit with a couple of other experts. Uh, so be on the lookout for those as well. All right. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Five Oceans podcast. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at www.5oceansadvisors.com or give us a call at 310-525-5155. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Five Oceans Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your individual planning. 
None of the information provided is intended as investment, tax, accounting or legal advice, as an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell, or as an endorsement of any company, security, fund, or other securities or non-securities offering. This information should not be relied upon for transacting securities or other investments. Under no circumstances shall Five Oceans Advisors be liable for any direct, indirect, special, or consequential damages that result from the use of or the inability to use the materials provided. In no event shall Five Oceans Advisors have any liability to you for damages, losses, and causes of action for accessing this commentary. Past performance is not indicative of future results.